0: Father, we thank you for the fact that you are working all across this world and that you're not just working here. You're a global God, uh, and you have a heart for people and nations, many of which we haven't even heard of. And uh, Father, you are redeeming a people unto yourself. Father, help us to understand that uh, we've been called for a purpose, and that purpose is to share not keep the secret to ourselves. And it's my prayer, Father, that you would challenge every man in this room, including myself, to get out of our comfort zone and to consider going and doing things that we really don't feel comfortable with. And, Father, that if we do, uh, you will use us and you will change us. We pray for David, we pray for the team that you're assembling, we pray that you would continue to raise up men to go on these kinds of trips and other trips, and give us a passion for the lost. Uh, Father, that there are countless millions of people around the world who have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and you left us here to be ambassadors, to tell the good news. We just pray that you would raise the funds necessary, you would raise up the men necessary, and that uh, you would make this an incredible trip when they go. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, guys, this morning we're uh, one week away from the finish, and we're going through the seasons of life. And this week we're going to talk about the season of rebuilding. And I want to read you a uh, part of a story and some of you may have heard this story before and if you have, bear with me. But it's appropriate for what we're going to talk about this morning. <clears throat> the year was nineteen seventy five. Early one morning on a deserted stretch of I-35, a small late-model Honda Civic made its way from Waco to Dallas. Inside, its 20-year-old occupant tried to drown out the monotony and his own thoughts with the blare from the eight-track player and a few tokes on another joint. Fear mingled with depression as he struggled with what he might find when he reached his final destination, the ICU at Baylor Hospital, where he was about to see his father for the first time in more than a year, Not exactly the best of circumstances, he thought. His father would be coming out of surgery any minute now, 13 hours worth. He had been through a lot over the last couple of years, three surgeries, a brush with death, and even worse, the loss of his ability to continue pastoring the church he loved so much. The young man recalled images of the strong, godly father he had grown up idolizing and admiring. He had often thought he would follow in his father's footsteps. In fact, he had planned to pursue the most noble of professions, attending his father's alma mater and Then the seminary, but things hadn't worked out quite that way. Instead, he pursued his own plan, his own selfish desires. A myriad of bad choices along the way had led to even worse results. Now as he drove along in the darkness, the reality of his situation sank in. He had failed, miserably and literally. Two years of college had ended in a meeting with the dean and a not-so-honorable dismissal. He had been kicked out, flunked. Now he was working in a job with no future, living in an apartment with no furniture, and facing a life with no hope. He hadn't darkened the door of a church in years. He prayed sporadically, usually only when he needed something, like a passing grade on a test he hadn't studied for in a class he rarely attended. His walk with the Lord was crippled by apathy, indifference, and years of self-centered living. God seemed distant, yet his problems crowded in around him, pressing in on all sides, smothering him, yet never comforting him. When he finally pulled into the hospital parking lot, he was relieved to escape the oppressive confines of his car to get a breath of fresh air. Then he remembered why he was there. Taking one last long drag, he exhaled slowly, then doused himself with cologne to cover the all-too-familiar scent. As he made his way up the steps to the hospital, his heart was pounding, his palms sweating, his mind racing. What would he say? More importantly, what would his father say? His life was a shambles. Everywhere he looked, the walls of faith his father and mother had spent so many years helping him construct were in a state of disrepair. No stone was left standing. He had let his father down. He could feel his disappointment on his ha- as his hand touched the cold, unforgiving metal of the door of the ICU. He hesitated, wanting to turn and run, afraid to face the truth. But something kept him there, giving the s- him the strength to open the door, not just to a hospital room, but to healing. A time of rebuilding, the foundation of a life wrecked by years of disobedience, neglect, and rebellion. You know, we're going to talk about rebuilding. What does it mean to rebuild? And inherent in the concept of rebuilding is if you're going to redo anything, it had to be there to begin with. If you're going to rebuild, something was built to begin with. If you're going to have revival, you know, we hear the church talk a lot about revival these days if you're going to have a revival, inherent in the concept of, re- of revival is something was there to be revived. And so in rebuilding, we're talking about rebuilding something that was there but that's been lost. And so we we want to talk about what it means to rebuild your life, to go back and reconstruct what was once there. You know, maybe it's the the case where things haven't turned out the way you planned. Maybe you're Marriage hasn't turned out the way you planned. Your business hasn't turned out the way you planned. Your life hasn't turned out the way you planned. Somewhere along the way, you took a U turn. Somewhere, you took a wrong path. And now it's time to go through some rebuilding, some restructuring of your life. You know, you get that feeling in your life sometimes where there's got to be more than this. This can't be all there is. You know, I've, I've pursued the dream. I've made the money. I've got the house. I've got the car. I've got the wife. I've got the kids. But there's got to be more than this. Is this all there is? Is this going to be the rest of my life? What we're talking about is that we want to repair the foundation, guys, the foundation of your life. It's what you're building your life on. And sometimes we, we end up building on a faulty foundation. It's, it's not sound. It's not what it needs to be. And so it's, it's foundational stuff that we're really talking about this morning. And it's adopting biblical priorities. What does the Bible say? Not what do I say, not what does the world say, not the values of the world, not my will, my way, but what's God's way? What are the biblical priorities? And so this morning, what I'd really like us to do is each of us to step back and really kind of assess our life. Where are we? How are we doing? Where do we need to rebuild if we need to rebuild? You know, we, like the young man in the story, may be years down the road, and somewhere back there we did take a wrong turn. And we we need to stop and just say, you know what, it's not too late. Um, It's time to rebuild. It's time to step back and really see what God can do. So this is a message for Christians this morning. It's a message for me. It's a message for you about what God would like to do in our lives. It's the hope of the gospel as it applies to us as believers. So we're going to look at uh, the story of Nehemiah. If you've got your Bibles, flip to Nehemiah. We're going to kind of blow through it this morning. If you need to look in the index to find Nehemiah, go ahead and do it. Nobody's going to laugh, at least not out loud. Look for Nehemiah. Great story. And we want to look real briefly at what was going on in the story of Nehemiah. Here's the situation. Nehemiah the man. We want to look at him first. This guy is in captivity in Persia. He's part of the people of Israel. They find themselves in captivity. And we're going to discuss how that came about in just a minute. But he's in captivity. We're told that he's a cupbearer to the king. Basically his job is to test the wine before it's given to the king to make sure it's not poisoned. You know, what a great job, you know. It's got some real nice perks, but it's got some real downsides, you know, if you happen to get the cup that's poisoned, But that's his job. That's what he does. So he's serving royalty. The guy's been born in exile, but he's raised in the faith of Israel's God. So he's he was actually born in Persia. Even though he's a Jew, he's one of the second generations that was born in that area But he's been raised in the faith of Yahweh, of God. So that's the story for him. He's in a unique situation, living in exile. Well, what about Jerusalem? He's in Persia. What's going on back home? Let's take a look at that. Well, it's been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar blew in the town and just basically destroyed the place. The Jews had been allowed to go back at one point. The temple had been rebuilt, so it sounds like things are getting a little bit better there. But then 71 years later, the city's in ruins again. It's just they never did rebuild it to the degree hoped for. So he's in exile, serving the king, some pagan Persian king. But back home, things are not going real well. It tells us in verse 3 that the remnant... Those who survived the captivity back in Jerusalem are in great distress and reproach. Things back home are not great. Things back home are not going well. It tells us the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. The place is in shambles. The walls that protect the city are literally just destroyed. The gates have been burned. There's nothing there and it's a sad, sad place. As a matter of fact, all the people that are left are the poor. The rich were taken. The royalty was taken. The wisest people were taken. So when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he took all the best and the brightest and took them captive, and he left the poor people there. So this city is not doing well. The nation is not doing well. We, we know that Jerusalem is in a sad state. The city, the country, everything. There's neglect. Neglect. Nobody is making any attempt to repair anything. Partly is they, don't, they can't afford to. The people are eking out a living. And so can you imagine you're walking around. It's like when, when I watch the news and you see some of these cities over in Iraq and you just see the, the abysmal state of and the conditions of these cities and blown out buildings and you know, services that don't work. And it's what a, what a horrible life to live to every morning get up. And that's what you face every day. You know, we get up in beautiful buildings, beautiful streets, streetlights work. You know, we complain about potholes. But we're talking about total destruction every morning you get up. How depressing that would be. State of neglect. The defenses are down. They are defenseless. The walls, there's nothing to protect them from the enemy. And it's every morning that's what you wake up to. And so you have these inhabitants. They're disgraced. They're shamed. The nations are laughing at them. So again, here's the picture. Nehemiah is over in Persia, but he has not forgotten what's going on back home, and it's not good. Suffering, misery, affliction, neglect, and it's going to burden his heart. It's going to really grieve him that that's the, that's the situation back home. How do things get so bad in Israel? What do you think? Okay, they turn from God. What else? Apathy. What else? Okay, no leadership. Disobedience. What else? Fat and happy. Yeah, that'll do it. No money. False idols. Anything else? Do what? They killed the prophets. That'll. That'll. Yeah. That doesn't help your situation. Um, Don't get any ideas. Don't kill the prophet, just don't come. What else? How would they get in this sad state of affairs? Broke his covenant. Blaming others. We don't do that. Arrogant. Yeah, it's amazing if you go back and you look at the story, you know, and if you've read much about Israel that pattern of just rebellion and arrogance and apathy and lack of leadership, lousy leadership. So how did things get this bad? You've, you've covered most of them, guys, but it was years of spiritual what? Number one, neglect. See, guys, this, th- this didn't just happen. And what I want us to understand is we don't get to where we are and it just happened overnight. It takes usually years of spiritual neglect they had made no attempt to rebuild along the way they just didn't care and so oftentimes we get to a point in our life when we think how did i get here how did this happen and i know you guys probably get tired of me saying this but you know when i meet with guys who are you know their marriages are failing or something's gone wrong and and they say yeah i just don't know how this happened and you sit there and go well, wait a minute What do you mean you don't know how this happened? This didn't just happen last night, did it? Your wife didn't wake up this morning and go, I hate your guts. Something led to this happening, and it's usually years of something. Years of neglect, years of abuse, years of lousy leadership, years of something. Exactly the same thing here, neglect. Years of spiritual arrogance. We're the chosen people of God. You go back and read the story and over and over again, we're the chosen people of God. We're the chosen people of God. God's not going to do anything to us. God's not going to allow us to go into captivity. And then guess what? They went into captivity. Then what were they saying while they're in captivity? God's not going to bring any more punishment on us. God's going to send us back. God's going to be gracious to us. God's going to be, We're God's chosen people. Arrogance, pride. See, I think this you know, the church in America suffers from this. We are so arrogant because we think we're God's Blessed people. We live in America. We have all these freedoms that we abuse. It's just arrogance. Who do we think we are? You know, they were the chosen people of God's eye, and he he didn't think twice about sending them into captivity. Why do we think we're special? Arrogance, personally and corporately. How about years of spiritual isolation? Just separated from God, just pulling away from God. Ah, we don't need to really... We don't need God that much. We don't really need to keep His commandments. We don't really need to keep His law. We're, you know, we're doing okay. We're, we're doing okay. Think about this in your own personal life. Then years of spiritual pillaging and plundering. I mean, you go back and read the story of Israel, and it was just over and over again, somebody coming in the door and pillaging and plundering. You know, just taking advantage of them, breaking down the walls. The enemy had had their way with Israel for years. And God had allowed it. And I think about my own life, your life, and there have been years of spiritual plundering by the enemy because of neglect. We're not in the Word. And the enemy just has a field day in our lives. We think we're in control, but we're really not. And the same thing was true of Israel. And then compromise, years of compromise, learning to just coexist with the enemy. Well, they're not that bad. You know, let's just intermarry with them. Let's just, you know, let's just worship their gods. Let's just be like them. Let's just, let's just all get along. And pretty soon what happens is we become like the world. We become like the enemy. And that's a dangerous place to be. It was a dangerous place for Israel. It's a dangerous place for us. Compromise. Well, what's the solution? What's the solution? Number one, contrition. Kind of a tough word. Not sure we know what it means. It basically means you got to come to a point of brokenness. Brokenness. And what's interesting is it didn't take place in Jerusalem. It took place in the heart of a guy living in exile, Nehemiah. And the story is that Nehemiah, when he hears about what's going on first from firsthand testimony in Jerusalem, in Judah, he is brokenhearted about what he hears. He is totally distraught that, wait a second, this is still God's city. This is still the city of David. This is wrong. And we're told that he weeps and he mourns. When's the last time you and I really wept and mourned over the state affairs in America? And not just America, but the state of the church in America. You know, we, we have a great church. We have a growing church. We have a wonderful church. But Overall, the state of the church in America is not necessarily healthy. The church is not what I think Christ has called it to be. And when do we weep and mourn about it? I'll tell you when it's, it's sobering is, you know, last Friday night when I went to the prayer time at this little bitty black Baptist church in Como, and about six, seven people are there to pray. And you see that community And you see that little church. (laughs) I mean, you walk into this place, their sanctuary is half the size of this room. That's their sanctuary. And you walk in there and you, you, you look at the community they're trying to minister to, and it'll bring you to tears. It's almost depressing to think of what they're up against. The state of affairs in our city, in this community, in this country... He wept and he mourned. He fasted and he prayed. He got on his knees. He stopped eating and he said, "I'm not going to stop until something happens." He was brokenhearted. This idea of contrition—that I, I'm sick of this. I don't like this. I don't want this anymore. You have to recognize your condition and feel remorse over it. You stop and you take stock and go, "I don't like this anymore." I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't like the state of affairs around me in my life, in the church, in my community. I don't like this anymore, and I'm not going to put up with it. So contrition is number one. Number two, confession. It's not enough to feel remorse. Gosh, I'm really sorry. That's really too bad. I wish things weren't this way. You have to confess. And what's really interesting about Nehemiah, what does he do? Nehemiah confesses the sins of both himself and the people. And if you go back and read the story, he uses the personal pronoun, you know, we, 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 over and over again, even though he's in exile. He didn't do any of this stuff, but he knows that as part of the body of Christ, he's responsible. So he confesses. He says, we've acted corruptly. We've disobeyed your commands. We've not obeyed you. And, and basically, in this idea of confession, is you're taking ownership. You're saying, God, I am where I am because of decisions that I made. And that is so important. It's important for us guys whenever we reach a point like this, you know, in brokenness, when we get broken, is to say, you know what, I'm here because of me. Don't don't blame the enemy. Don't give Satan more credit than he deserves. Take some ownership. Just say, you know what, I I made this mess. I played a big role in getting to where I am, whether it's a broken marriage, a broken business, spiritual brokenness, whatever it may be, take some ownership and just say, I played a big part and confess. Take ownership. Thirdly, has to do with claims. Nehemiah knew their condition was a result of disobeying God. Disobeying God. He knew they got where they were because they had just disobeyed God. But he also knew that obedience could bring blessing. He knew the claims of God. He knew what God had said, blessing and cursing. You obey me, you get blessing. You disobey me, you get cursing. And he knew that, man, we are where we are because we had disobeyed. But if we go back and obey the claims of God, it can be changed. You have to remember that only repentance brings restoration. In our personal lives... When we reach a point where we know we need to rebuild, something's not right, we have to remember that repentance is what brings restoration. You want your life to be what it should be? You want your life to be back to what it once was? You've got to repent. You've got to say, you know what? I'm changing the way I live my life. And I'm seeing that happen in men's lives, men's... Men whose marriages are are not going well, their lives are being changed. They are repenting. Is it necessarily going to restore their marriage? Don't have a clue. Can't make that promise. Can't make that claim. But I can claim that God will bless them. On whatever terms God chooses, if they repent, he will restore. And that's critical for us to understand when we're rebuilding our lives. Well, here's some steps to rebuilding, guys. Number one, take some inventory. Take inventory. Take stock. One of the things Nehemiah did is he went back and he assessed the situation. He goes to the king and he says, listen, hey, I'd like to go back to Jerusalem and I'd like to help rebuild. He took some real risks doing this because he's the cupbearer to the king. And he says, you know, I'd like to go back. And what he did first is he prayed, and God blessed his prayer, and God gave him favor with the king, and the king said, go for it. He got a royal escort. He got the funds to do it, but he went back and he took stock. He reassessed what's really going on here. So he got permission, saw things for himself. He personally walked the walls. Go back and read the book of Nehemiah. It's a fascinating story. He got up, and in the middle of the night, he, he just traverses the walls. Nobody knows he's there. Nobody knows what he's doing. And he just took stock, and he took personal note. Man, that wall's down. That wall's down. That gate's burned. This has a problem. This has a problem. And he took stock. And you know, one of the most painful things for you and I to do sometimes is to take spiritual stock of our lives. Where am I spiritually? What's my faith really like? What's my prayer life like? What is my time with the Lord really like? What's my knowledge of the scriptures? Take some personal stock. Assess your situation. Because rebuilding really starts, it really begins when you're willing to do that honest, personal assessment of your true spiritual condition. See, we we go through, I think we try to fool ourselves. You know, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. You know, I go to church every Sunday. I periodically read the Bible, and uh, every now and then I, I put on 90.9. I, I listen to KCBI. You know, take real stock. Do a real personal assessment. And I think what you'll find is, if you're honest, you've got some walls down. You've got some gates that are burned. You've got some things that are not what they should be. He took an inventory. Secondly, prepare for opposition. This is real important. Because if you want to rebuild your life, guess who doesn't want you to rebuild your life? The enemy. He hates it. He loves for us to live in mediocrity. I've said this before. Satan doesn't want you to worship him. He just doesn't want you to worship God or do it half-heartedly. So you've got to prepare that when you start to rebuild, he's going to fight you. And that's exactly what Nehemiah found. The enemy doesn't want him. They don't want him to rebuild. They like the walls down. They like... Jerusalem demoralized and defeated. And the city of God, in the state that it's in, is exactly what they wanted because they are no threat. And see, if you, as a Christian, are living a life that is not what God has called you to, nobody loves it more than Satan. He loves for you and I to live mediocre Christian lives because it's the greatest advertisement for him. Because lost people look at us, your friends look at you and go, that's Christianity? Not interested, not going there. Mediocrity is great for the enemy. He loves it. And so he's going to keep you from rebuilding. He's going to fight you at every turn. And as children of God, a state of spiritual disrepair is no threat to Satan. He loves it. He loves our walls being down. He loves for us to be demoralized, defeated, not living the life we're called to live, distracted, arrogant, prideful. He likes it because we're no threat. So you've got to prepare for opposition. You've got to set proper priorities. What did Nehemiah do in chapter 3? He took logical, small steps. See, we get overwhelmed. You know, we, we just look, gosh, I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. My life is so screwed up. Just take small, logical steps. That's what he did. What did he do? And this is really interesting. If you read the story, the first thing he did is he rebuilt the Sheep Gate. I don't have a clue what the Sheep Gate is, but I found out. And the Sheep Gate was where the sacrificial animals were brought in. Why do you think that would be important? Why build the Sheep Gate first? you got to get the sheep in. If you're going to reestablish sacrifice, if you're going to get take care of the sins of the people, start there. He set real, proper priorities. And that's what you and I need to do. See, oftentimes we think, well, okay, i got to go serve somewhere. You know, I'm not I'm not the leader I should be. I'm not the spiritual leader. I'm going to go serve. I'm going to go serve in the Sunday school ministry. And the Lord's going, why don't you just read your Bible? Why don't you go spend some time with me? You know, maybe your step is not to go on a mission trip. Maybe you just need to open the Bible and spend some time. Start at the logical place. He emphasizes the spiritual first, and he puts their relationship with the Lord first. That's what you and I need to do. If you're going to rebuild, take stock, and then set proper priorities. Begin with the simplest things first. Don't overwhelm yourself. And then keep focused. Keep focused. Keep focused. One of the things Nehemiah found was there were constant temptations to get distracted. You know, if he walked around, he took stock, and he could look over here. This gate's down. That wall's down. You know, gosh, I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. The enemies are screaming at me. They're sending him nasty letters. They're sending emails to the king. It's just everything could get distracting, and he had to stay focused. And guess what? The progress was painfully slow. We are a quick-fix society. We want it to happen tonight. Tomorrow morning, I want to get my marriage back together now. I want my business to turn around now. I want to be spiritually improved tomorrow. It's going to take time, and you got to stay focused. He faced constant opposition. These guys were relentless, and they were badgering him, and they were mocking him, and they were sending him letters, and they were sending letters to the king and back in Persia, saying, "Hey, Nehemiah is trying to rebuild the wall, so he can he can rebel against you." Lies. All kinds of innuendos flying. He had to stay focused. And guess what? There were still daily life situations that had to be taken care of. And that's one of the things you and I face is when we really start trying to rebuild our lives, work will get pressing. Something will happen at home. Life will just get busy. And suddenly we lose focus and we get distracted. That's exactly what the enemy wants to do. Because guess what? Everybody that helped Nehemiah had a real job. They had a real job. Because you go back in, they were goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants. And yet you read the story, and it's fascinating. When they started rebuilding the wall, and you read the passage, it says that, and next to so-and-so was so-and-so, and and next to him was so-and-so, and and next to him was so-and-so. And And they were literally side by side all along the wall of Jerusalem, all building the wall. And then they had to go home and do their real job. They had to go home and be a goldsmith. They had to go home and be a merchant. They had to go home and f- till the fields. They, uh, they all had real jobs. You guys all have real jobs. But sometimes when we're rebuilding our lives or we're rebuilding the church, we're re- re- rebuilding the community of Christ, we have to do double duty. That's what these people are doing, double duty. They all felt pressures of life. They were all hungry. They all had kids to feed. They all had work to get done. They all had deadlines to make. But they had to stay focused. They had to get those walls rebuilt. Stay prayerful. Stay prayerful. This kind of goes without saying, but it's probably one of the key things we leave out. Nehemiah constantly called out to God. Go back, read the story. And he was constantly praying. Lord, what do I do now? Lord, we need your help. Lord, stop the enemy. Keep us focused. Give us strength. When you're rebuilding your life, when you're rebuilding the community of, of faith, the, the body of Christ, you got to have prayer because it's that mortar that holds it all together. It'd be like building a wall without mortar. All you got to do is go over and push it and it falls down. Prayer is what holds it all together. And it's so important in, in rebuilding our lives, whatever you're rebuilding from. Then you've got to remain committed. Stay committed. Nehemiah refused to give up. He refused to throw in the towel. And guys, I know there are guys in the room who are ready to just go. you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm so tired of rebuilding. I'm so tired of going through what I'm going through. Don't give up. Stay committed. Look what he had to fight. He had to face fear. Constant fear of rebellion. Constant fear of the enemy. Constant fear of failing. Constant fear of, you know, all kinds of stuff. What if it doesn't happen? What if we don't get it rebuilt? What if the enemy attacks? What if the king suddenly sends for me and says, you're done. This is over. Constant fear, constant opposition. Every day he was faced with lack of success. You walk out and, gosh, we still haven't started that wall. That gate's still not up. I mean, it, it, it could get real depressing. And sometimes when we look at our lives, we get depressed and go, I'm not making any progress here. I'm not changing. But yes, you are. God is working. It's just going to take time. And you got to stay committed. You've got to stay to the task. He faced the fear of sheer exhaustion, just t- just completely worn out. The the fear of t- the temptation to compromise. Well, what if we, okay, we won't, all right, if I can stop the enemy from badgering me, we just won't put those gates up. We'll only build the wall halfway. We'll, okay, we'll just stop. But that's not what God had called him to. Stay committed, even if you fear the desire to relax. Man, I just need rest. I just need to just take it easy. I, I need a vacation. Don't you know Nehemiah felt like just taking a vacation, going down to the coast? You know, just taking, taking it easy for a while, just giving up. But he had to fight that. He had to stay committed. And then he needed to recognize that God is sovereign. God's in control. This is one thing I think we have to learn day in, day in and day out. Nehemiah 6.16 says, This work has been accomplished with the help of our God. How had they done what they had done? How had they got the walls back up? How had they accomplished any of this? It was because God had allowed them to. God was making this possible. And the truth is, God's the only one that can rebuild your life. Whatever state your life is in, if you want to rebuild it, only God's going to make that happen, not you. Only God was going to make it possible to rebuild the walls. I love these passages. Jeremiah 18, 6 it says, Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Just like clay. Clay in a potter's hand, the, the potter can do whatever he wants with it. He can mold it into whatever he wants. Isaiah sixty four eight says this, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are our potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. You are clay in the potter's hand. And guess what? He can mold you into whatever he wants. What do you think God wants to mold you into? What, what, what do you think God is trying to do when he's, you know, taking you and he's just kind of mashing on you and he's He's twisting you and he's got you on that wheel and he's, and it's kind of painful and it's, you know, you're not even sure what you're being made into, but you just know you don't like it. This is not fun. What is he trying to do? I think the best passage for this is 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 21. Listen to what it says. He wants to make you into a vessel for honor, sanctified, set apart, holy, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work. See, that's what he's making here. That's why he's taking us through what he's taking us through. That's why this rebuilding is so important. It's like he has completely just taken us and said, This is not what I intended. So guess what? We're going to start over. And he rebuilds. But he's rebuilding us into vessels of honor, sanctified, set apart, useful to the master for his use to do what he wants to do with your life, in your life, through your life. Well, you know, the the story most of you guys know, the story I read earlier is my story. That's my life. Um, That took place back in the 70s. And that trip to the hospital was a life-changing experience to me. It, It revolutionized my life because when I walked in the door of that hospital, I experienced unconditional love. Because when I opened up that door to the ICU and I walked in that room and I didn't want to be there and I wanted to run, there in the hospital bed lay my dad after 13 hours of surgery with tubes coming out of every orifice in his body. He's on all kinds of support machinery. And when I walked up to him, I had no clue what to say. I didn't want to be there. I was guilty as charged. And I really thought what my dad was going to do is just ream me royally. And he had every right. I thought he was going to say, look what you did to me. You know, you caused this to me. You know, you're just a worthless, no good son. But no, what does my dad do? He shows me unconditional love. He reached out and he loved me. He affirmed me. He built me up. He said nothing but positive things to me that, that afternoon. And here's the words out of my father's mouth. Words of love. I love you. I, I, I You're precious to me. I have prayed for you since the day you were born. When you were born, God told me God was going to do great things in your life. And he's not done with you yet. See, I thought I'd fooled my dad all those years. I thought my dad knew nothing about my lifestyle. Now, he's, you know, I, I thought my dad was stupid like most kids do. But my dad knew. He may not have known all the details, but he did know that I'd been kicked out of college. He did know, know that I, I was failing at virtually everything I touched. He knew I was unfaithful. He knew that I couldn't keep my promises. He knew that I was a loser in a lot of ways. But you know what? He just said, I love you. He gave words of encouragement. He said, God is going to use your life. And I'm sitting there going, why would God want to use me? I don't even go to church. I haven't cracked open a Bible in years. I don't even talk to God. But see, that's not what my dad told me. He encouraged me. He loved me. He had words of confidence. I believe in you. And this is coming from a guy who's laying in a hospital bed after 13 hours of surgery. Who almost died three times. And he's saying, I have confidence in you. I believe in you. Words of blessing. God's going to use you. God's going to do something great in your life. And then words of forgiveness. You know, he never said, I forgive you, but I walked out feeling forgiven. Because he knew what I'd done, and he didn't condemn me. Words of forgiveness and no condemnation. Even though he knew everything I'd done. My dad could have said a lot of things to me. He could have corrected me, and he probably should have, but he didn't. There was never a but associated with anything he said. You know, I love you, but I am a little disappointed. You know, God's going to use you, but you really need to get your act together. I forgive you, but don't ever do it again. There was no but associated in anything that he said, and no disappointment even though he felt it. Not once did my dad express, gosh, I'm disappointed in you. Why is this important? Why, Why am I even telling this story? Well, number one, it's my story. Number two, it's a story of rebuilding. My dad loved me. To this day, my dad loves me. But guess what? God loves you. God loves you. God wants to change you. God wants to forgive you. God wants to tell you how much he loves you. God wants to help you rebuild your life. God has confidence in you. God has a plan for you. God wants to bless you. God wants to take you to a whole new level. But he's got to sometimes break us to get us there. To rebuild us into what he wants us to be. Romans eight thirty nine guys, says nothing. Nothing. What does that mean? What does it mean in the original Greek? Nothing. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. I don't care how stupid you've been. I don't care how many dumb mistakes you've made. I don't care how lousy a businessman you've been, how lousy a dad you may be, how lousy a husband you have been. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. You, God. God is forgiving, guys. Listen to this. You are a God of forgiveness, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them, Israel. Guess what? He will not forsake you. He will not forsake you. Well, again, this this morning as we leave, I'm going to, Chris, play this song, and I just want you to listen to the words of this song as we close. It's the love of God, great old hymn. And this will be our closing this morning.
1: The love of God is greater
0: far
1: Than tongue or pen Can never tell It goes beyond The highest star And reaches to The lowest head The guilty pair Bow down with care God gave His Son
0: Father, I pray this morning you would help us to understand your incredible love for us. That, Father, you are a God who rebuilds lives. And, Father, our lives may be fine. We may think that everything's going smoothly. Everything is just as we want it to be. Um, we're not unhappy. We're not uh, miserable in any way. We think uh, life's going great. But, Father, help us to step back and do a radical assessment of where we really are spiritually. And to see what you see. And we may have some walls down we're not aware of. We may have some gates burned down that we need to do something about. Father, help us to understand that in spite of where we are, you love us. Just like you loved Israel. And that Father, just like my dad loved me at that point in my life. You love us. And you want to express that love to us. By molding us and making us into vessels for honor. Set apart for you that we might do the works you've called us to do. Father, thank you for these guys. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your willingness to continually mold and make us into the men you want us to be. Don't ever let us give up. Don't let, ever let us give in to the enemy. And we're going to thank you even now for what you're going to do in the days, the weeks, the months, and the years ahead as you continue your faithful process. Of rebuilding our lives. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our